We're going to turn to 2 Kings 5. We'll read verses 8 to 23. And uh, last week, we saw how it is that God cares about the little things in a sermon titled, It's the Little Things, isn't it? And this morning, we look at how God cares about the big things and the big things too. So before we read from 2 Kings 6, let's pray the Lord will open our eyes to it. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things from your word, even from 2 Kings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Now the king of Aram, that is the king of Syria, was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the kings that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, Strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, Open the eyes of these men so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and, they were, and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink, and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. In April of, of 1521, Martin Luther was on his way home from the Diet of Worms. That might sound like a disgusting thing to you, a diet of worms. That's because we don't understand the word diet or understand what Verms is. So a diet is not something you eat in this sense. A diet is like an assembly, an assembly of, 
of regional rulers or authorities. And Worms is not the squiggly things that go in the ground. It's a, a city or a, a town in Germany. And so the, the Diet of Worms was called by Pope Leo X, who was Pope in 1521, and he, he called this, this diet to deal with the problem of, the, of the, the Luther, the Luther problem. Luther had published his 95 theses, his 95 grievances with the church in Rome, 95 things which he saw to be in direct contradiction to the Word of God. And the Roman church didn't take very kindly to this because it assumed for itself the ability to speak with authority, an authority equal to the Scriptures. So the Pope calls for this diet and he summons Luther to appear in order to give Martin a chance to recant what he had been teaching and what he had been saying. And Luther, bound by his conscience and by the word of the Lord, refuses to recant. And it's at the Diet of Worms that he gives his famous Here I Stand speech. But there was another man besides the Pope who was involved in the Diet. It was a man named Charles V. And Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor. He would have been uh, almost certainly the most powerful man in Western civilization. The, the Holy Roman Empire extended from Spain, the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Austria, parts of Italy, parts of North Africa. He was he was one of the most powerful men, if not the most powerful men in the world. And he was a Roman Catholic, and he was on very good terms with the Pope. And so when Luther refuses to recant, Charles V declares Luther to be an outlaw. That is, that anyone in the entirety of his empire could kill Luther without consequence. And when the two most powerful men, perhaps in the world, want you dead, you're in grave danger. But the Lord was going to spare Luther. And Luther had, had friends. He had those who wished to see him spared. And one of those was a regional ruler named Frederick the Wise. And Frederick was wise, and he decided he was going to rescue Martin. And so he arranges to have him kidnapped on his way home. And he kidnaps him, and he whisks him away to a castle, and he hides him there for a, for a year. And in that year, Luther takes on an alias, he grows a beard, he grows his hair out long, even those who knew him couldn't recognize him, and he translated the Bible into the German language, one of the most important things which had been done to date. And so Luther was spared. It seemed like a hopeless situation on the surface. The two most powerful men in the world both wanting you dead. But it wasn't hopeless, because God protected him. And in his protection, in God's protection of Martin Luther, he protected not just one man, but he protected a movement. He, prote he protected the preaching of the gospel. He protected the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. He protected the church from error. And even we have reason to believe he protected us. He gave us, through this great movement of the Reformation, the Gospel and the Word of God in our own language. That God was protecting His people. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage from 2 Kings chapter 6. We see that God spares Elisha. But it's not really about Elisha. At least it's not exclusively about Elisha. In sparing Elisha, God also spares His people 
he spares his people because Elisha is the defender of his people. But he also spares them because here we see that there's a, an enemy army which is very powerful, which is set on the destruction of the Israelite king. And so here we see, as we saw last week, that God cares about widows and poor prophets with sunken axe heads who can't afford to replace them, that God cares about the little guy and the little things. Here we see that God cares about the big guy and the big things as, as well, that God is sovereign over all things, whether the minutia of life or whether the big picture of life. God is sovereign and cares about all things, orchestrates all things together for the good of His people. So let's begin there. In verses 8 to 12, verses 8 to 12, we read, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king that he was so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha the prophet who was in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. The whole story is full of ignorance, isn't it? We are ignorant of many things. How, how, does the author of, how does the author of Kings know of the conversations that took place with the Syrian king and his advisors? Uh, perhaps it's that one of those advisors became a believer in Israel's God and shared the story. Or maybe it is that Elisha recorded all those conversations and passed them down, but, but we don't know. And how did, how did the advisor of the king of Syria, know that it was Elisha who was giving all the, all the tips as to exactly where the king was to be. We don't know that. We also don't know who the king was or who the other king was. We don't know the names of any of the people in this story. We don't know who Elisha's servant was. The only person who's named in the story is Elisha himself. And then we see ignorance on the part of the Syrian king as well. He has no idea how it is that every time he brings out his superior force to go and trap the king of Israel and get rid of this enemy, this menace to him, he has no idea how it is that every time he goes out, the king of Israel seems to know exactly where he is and exactly what his plan is. And so he comes up with the only reasonable explanation that he can think of. Somebody is telling the king of Israel all of his plans. And so you can just about hear the rage in his voice when he comes into his, his council of his advisors. Which of you is the traitor? Which of you is the mole? And one of the advisors, who somehow knows that the problem is not here, but with Elisha, says, My lord, the king, none of us, but there's this prophet. And he tells the king of Israel, Even the words you speak in your bedroom. Now talk about big brother. Right? There's a foreign king who even knows what you say in the sanctuary of your own palace bedroom. But here we see, here we see that the, the prophet of Israel is protecting Israel, even protecting Israel's king 
who was not a particularly good king, no matter which king it was. Then we move on to verses 13 to 15. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. The king decides this is a problem that needs to be taken care of. So he sends out some people to go find out where the prophet is. The people come back and they say that he's in Dothan. And so the king sends out this, this military force to go and capture Elisha, bring him back, presumably to put him to death and to get rid of this problem of the man who knows what he speaks in his bedroom. It, it seems just like storytelling, doesn't it? Just, it just details in the story. But if, if you look carefully, it's not that. It's actually funny. There's irony here. There's, there's humor here. Look at the, the foolishness of this foreign king. right? He, he knows. He knows that the king of Israel is told exactly what he's saying in his bedroom by this prophet. How is it possible that he thinks that he can send out an army to go and capture the man who knows exactly what he's doing and exactly when he's going to do it? And isn't there even greater irony? Elisha knows exactly where the king is and exactly what he says, even in the most private of places. But this mighty king doesn't even know where Elisha lives. You see, there's a, a great foolishness that we see here in this king. He should have known better. He should have known better than to think that he could defeat this mighty prophet and this mighty prophet's God, but he failed. He failed because he was foolish, and he was foolish because he doubted the power and the wisdom of Israel's God, our God. So the king hears where Elisha is, and he sends out this force, and Elisha's servant wakes up, and you can just about imagine his shock. He wakes up as he had probably woken up any number of times in the past, and he steps outside, and you can just about imagine he freezes. And he looks around, all around the, the town where he is, and overnight, seemingly out of nowhere, chariots and horses have appeared surrounding the entirety of the city. And you can just about imagine what goes through his mind. This is not good. This is not good. And then the next thing that must have come to his mind was, how is it possible that my master has missed this? He's been tipping off the somewhat wicked king of Israel every time that his life is in danger. He knows the very words which the king of Syria speaks in his bedroom. How is it possible that he couldn't know when the king was going to come and try to kill him? How can this possibly be? And so he cries out about the only thing he can think of saying, Oh my Lord, what shall we do? Now doesn't that ring some bells for us, right? When the, when the prophets ate the death soup, what did they say? Oh man of God, there's death in the pot. And when the, when the prophet had the axe head that, that sunk in the passage we looked at last week, what did he say? Oh my Lord, it was borrowed. And now this prophet has, or this servant has nowhere else to turn. There's nothing he can do. There's, there's no way he's on, there's no way he's getting out of this except, except he turns to the Lord. He turns to the man of God. 
But he speaks, it seems, not so much out of faith as he speaks out of frustration. And then Elisha, Elisha speaks to him. But do you see yourself in that, in that servant? He should have known better too, shouldn't he? He, he knows that Elisha is the one who's able to raise a dead man. Elisha can make iron axe heads float. Elisha, Elisha can turn death soup into life soup. Elisha is a servant of God. He, is, he has seen all these things. Shouldn't he have known better? But isn't that true of us? That we have seen in our lives time and time and time and time again how God has provided for us, how He has protected us, how He has loved us. And yet when we come to the next challenge or the next problem, so often our first thought is not, God will provide. But our first thought is, oh no, what will we do? You know, so often we come to the Scriptures just to read the story and we fail to see ourselves in it, not as the heroes, but all too often as the fools who need to be reminded again and again and again and again that God is good and that God is able to save those who come to him in faith. So the man of, of God, the man of faith, Elisha, speaks the word of calm, verses 16 and 17. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now we have the first of three prayers in the passage, and each of these three, each of these three prayers has to do with sight. First he wants the servant to see, then he wants the army blinded, then he wants the army to see. So three prayers, each of the prayers has to do with sight. And this first one is that this man, this, this servant of his, has come out and he's seen all these, all these chariots, all these horses, and he has seen. Isn't, it isn't ironic. He says, open his eyes that he can see. But the man can already see. Right? He already sees. He sees chariots. He sees horses. He sees no way out. What do you mean, open his eyes that he may see? But you see, Elisha knew that there was a problem with the servant. He saw it with the eyes of his face, but he didn't see with the eyes of faith. And so Elisha wants him to see, not things as they appear to his senses, but he wants him to see things as they truly are. See, the man sees the problem, but he does not see God and God's providence. And so he says, open his eyes that he may see. Isn't that something that we should pray for ourselves and for those around us? Open our eyes. Open my eyes that I can see your power. Open my eyes that I can see myself as you see me in Christ. Open my eyes that I might see what is wise and right and beautiful in your sight. Open my eyes that I can see my, my utter dependence on you and your provision for me. Open the eyes of my neighbor that he might see the glory of Christ and be saved. Open the eyes of my children that they might walk in righteousness and in wisdom. Open my eyes that I might see the glory and the grace and the power and the majesty of Christ. Shouldn't we be praying 
God, open my eyes that I don't just see according to my senses, but I see according to what the Spirit would speak to me in the Word. Open my eyes that I might see what truly is, not just what the world would see. And so Elisha prays, and the Lord answers, and the man's eyes are opened, and what does he see? But he sees an army even greater than the one which was a danger. Elisha had said, those who are for us are greater than those who are for them or for those who are against us. And now he sees this army full of these, these chariots of fire. And for those of you who have been trekking faithfully through the book of Kings with me here, chariots of fire ought to ring some kind of a bell. We've seen chariots of fire before. It was chariots of fire that came and whisked Elijah up into the whirlwind and spared Elijah from death forever. And so again, here come the the chariots of fire, this, this army of God. And what are they going to do? But they're going to save Elijah from death as well. That God is able to spare from death with His own armies. And this can bring us to a time in the life of Jesus. In Matthew 26, we come and we see that Jesus is about to be arrested. And as he's about to be arrested, the the crowd comes, this mob comes out with Jewish and Roman soldiers alike, and, and Peter sees... Peter sees that this looks like a terrible situation. Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be killed. There's no secret they want to kill him. And so Peter does the only thing he can think to do. He takes his sword out and he starts chopping and he cuts a guy's ear off, Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Jesus quickly puts an end to that. And what does he say? Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? God can save whomever He wants to save and whenever He wants to save. He wanted to save Elisha and He did. And He didn't incredibly want to save His own son. And He didn't. Such is the wisdom and the love of God. But now we move into the second prayer in verse 18. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Uh, The Lord taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. And that's essentially Elisha's prayer. But here we see a, a a very different situation from the servant. The servant didn't see as well as Elisha would have liked, this foreign army sees better than Elisha would like. And so whereas he prays for the first one to see, he prays for this group to be blind. And just exactly as he had prayed, the Lord strikes them with a blindness that they are not able to see, and they're not able to understand what's happening to them or what's happening around them. But isn't this how God works as well? God strikes his enemies. We see that in in Egypt, when the Hebrews were in slavery, God strikes his enemies with plagues. 
He strikes them with the waters of the Red Sea. And then with David and Goliath, he strikes the, the giant Goliath, who was much stronger than the young boy David. He strikes Goliath with the, the shepherd boy's stone. And here he, he strikes this army with blindness. And what do all three of these things have in common? But that God uses the prayers and the, and the faithful efforts of holy men who trust Him to accomplish salvation for His people. And I think that pattern of prayer and of faithfulness is one that we ought to keep in mind for ourselves. We see arrayed around us, even as we heard this morning, we see arrayed around us what seems to be very powerful armies of secularism. And so many of us, I suspect, have sort of a, a spirit of despair about our country, about our civilization even. It's probably not helped by those who publish headlines designed to make you read or to watch and to wallow in your despair. But how does God God save? He does not send into Egypt a greater army. He does not send a giant larger than Goliath. But what does He do? He sends faithful persons of prayer and of humility. We are going to be rescued from the world around us. It will not be with great armies of our own. It will be with prayer, with humility, and the power of God. So then we see the result of this third prayer in verses 19 and 20. Elisha told them, this is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were inside Samaria. Now now look who's saved here. There's a second group of people who are saved here. First, Elisha and his servant are saved. But now who is saved? Now Israel is saved. Now Israel's king is saved. Syria was a stronger power, which is why they could come into Israelite territory without consequence and do all their raids. But here, what happens? Now by God's God's own power, the, the army of the enemy is marched right into the fortress of Israel and they are completely disabled. So if the king had won, wanted to or been able to, he could have destroyed the army of the enemy king without any problem. God has rescued his people, but how has he rescued his people? Not by the power of the king. And not even by Elisha's power. Elisha's power wasn't his power. He had prayed. He had prayed and then he had prayed again. The Lord has rescued his people by his own power. You see, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who's the greatest defender of His people. And if we are in need of defense, and if we are in need of protection, and if we are in need of being saved, it is foolish to look to anyone except to Christ. And to Christ alone. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Now we'll finish the story in verses 21 to 23. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? That is, would you, would you kill prisoners of war? Set food and water before them so they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away. 
and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. God is not done saving yet, is he? Right? First he saved Elijah and his servant, and then he saved Israel, and now he saves the enemy army. Do, 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 you, see, do you see the wonder of this passage? Against all odds, nobody dies. Right? Everybody wants to kill somebody in the story, right? The king of Syria wants to kill the king of Israel. The king of Syria wants to kill Elisha. And the, the king of Israel would like to have, I'm sure the king of Syria did, and the king of Israel asked if he might have permission to kill the king of Syria's armies. The only one who doesn't want someone dead is Elisha. And everybody wants somebody dead, but in the story, nobody dies. God saves them all. Is it incredible how God can save? Even foreign enemy Gentile armies. God saves whoever he wants, whenever he wants, and however he wants. But what's the point? Right, what, what's the point of the story? It's really nice that God saves. It's, it's kind of a funny story in some ways. It's, there's plenty of irony, but what's, what's the point? The point, when you look at the last story together with this story, the point is this, that God cares about his people, small and big. And he is powerful and sovereign over small things like sunken, borrowed axe heads. And he is sovereign over big things like the armies of mighty kings. God cares about his people. And God loves his people. And he will orchestrate all things from the smallest to the largest to work for the good of his people because he loves them. And ever since the church began, the church has faced big enemies. The first enemies the church faced were the, the militant Jews, like Paul himself before he was converted, and the Romans. And then it was the barbarians who conquered the Romans, and they had no love for the church either. And then it was the, the rise of radical Islam as it, it ousted Christians from all these places even from the Holy Land, so to speak, it ousted Christians from all these places where the church had begun. And then as, as time went on, there was danger, increasing danger from all different areas. And as our own time drew near, there's danger to the church from communism and secularism and the militant forces of all kinds of enemy religions. The church has always faced very, 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 very powerful enemies. The world, as Psalm 2 says, the, the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and His anointed. But will they succeed? Will the powers of the world and of the nations, will they succeed in defeating God and His people? Well, of course not. The psalm goes on to say the Lord holds them in derision. He will terrify them. He will terrify them with his wrath. You know, if, if you, you look at the small picture last week, and we step back and we look at the big picture this week, and what does Jesus say? But he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The scriptures never promise, the scriptures never promise that you won't suffer. And they never promise even that you won't die 
on account of faith in Christ, as many of our brothers and sisters are learning and have learned in history. The Scriptures don't promise anything to you specifically in your own suffering, but the Scriptures promise very plainly that God's people will endure to the very end. And the Scriptures promise very plainly that no matter how powerfully or angrily the nations conspire in rage against God, God will always be victorious and God's people will always be held safely in the palm of His hand. It's like we read in Jeremiah 29, verse 11, an often misquoted, often misapplied passage. But what does the Lord promise His people there? He says, I know the plans I have for you. You is plural. It's kind of like y'all. Again, we should be Southerners. I know the plans I have for y'all, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a hope and a future. He wasn't promising that there wasn't going to be pain. He wasn't promising a lack of suffering. He was promising a future. And He was promising a salvation. And He was promising a hope. He was promising to protect and preserve His people. It's like we read in Psalm 125, verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. Do you believe it? Do you believe that no matter how strong the empire, no matter how mighty the enemy, no matter how many of them there are, and no matter how few of us you can see, do you believe that those who are for us are greater than those who are against us? The servant couldn't see it until God opened his eyes to it. But what do we read in Scripture again? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul wrote of himself and of those who preached the gospel with him, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. What's the irony of Paul saying that? Paul says that, and Paul was struck down. Paul had his head cut off by a Roman emperor because he preached the gospel and he wouldn't stop. Paul was struck, Paul was struck down. But you know what wasn't struck down? Paul's God wasn't struck down, and Paul's gospel wasn't struck down. Paul's gospel is still preached, and Paul's God is still king. God will never be defeated, and neither will His people. Have you prayed for eyes to see that? Have you prayed for eyes to see that no matter how dark things may be, that God will not be defeated? Can you look past the headlines? Can you look past the headlines and all the, all the negative press? Can you, can you look past, even can you look past the bodies of our brothers and sisters in the Lord which lay strewn across Nigeria as their churches burn? Can you look past all of that? And can you look past that to a God who will always protect His people and who can never be defeated? It takes faith. It takes faith to be a part of the people of God who are so often so small and so weak. It takes faith to look to a God who is always strong and always sovereign. God cares for His people. If He didn't, we would be struck down and destroyed. Psalm 124, 
if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. When people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. If the Lord had not been on our side. I suspect many of us, even most of us, just like Elisha's servant, need to be given eyes to see that the Lord is on our side. That He is our defender. That He is, as Psalm 46 says, and then as Psalm 91 says, He is our fortress. Martin Luther knew this very well. He knew the Lord was a fortress. If it hadn't been so, he'd have been destroyed long before he did die. And Psalm 91 says this, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield. It's so full of imagery. God is a fortress, as a refuge. Even God as a bird who protects under his wings, and whose feathers bring comfort. A God who helps. Luther ended his, his famous Here I Stand speech with these words, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. God did help him. And God will help us. God has helped his people always in the past. He helps his people now. He will help them in the future. And God will help his people until he ushers them into the perfection of eternity and the fullness of his kingdom. And you know what our job is and what it isn't? Our job is not to make God protect us. Our job is not to make it so. Our job is to see that it is so. Our job is to have eyes that open, to see that he who is for us is always greater than whoever it is that is against us. God cares about his people small, and God cares about his people, every last one of them. Let's pray. God, would you give us eyes would you give us eyes? We, we think of those men who came to Jesus. We want to see Jesus. God, we want, to see, we want to see the cross. We want to see, even as he bled and died, we want to see the Lord crushing the head of the serpent. We want to see his triumph over the armies and the principalities and the powers which stand against us. We want to see that. We want to see the risen Lord who has come out triumphant over death. We want to see 
We want to see that you are for us and you are greater than all those who are against us. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see how in the past you have provided for us. And give us the gift of faith that we might trust you. That as our brothers and sisters so often throughout history and even throughout the world trust you in the face, even in the face of death. God, that we might see we might believe, we might trust. We pray for this, for ourselves, and for our children, and for our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.